What did you have for breakfast today? Uh, I'm on the <laughs> I'm on the man challenge. So, the man challenge. Yeah, the man challenge. So it's an online program. Okay. Um, and so I had my man shake this morning. Okay. What's in a man shake? Protein. That's it. Yeah, chocolate. Okay. What, I've what, actually brought a man bar with me to snack on. <laughs> what What does man stand for? Uh, exactly what you and I are. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So it's just man, M A N. Yeah, yeah. So it's a program built for men. Ah, right. Yeah. So Adam McDougall, former NRL player, has put an online program together with, in conjunction with Paul Ruse, former Sydney coach. Yeah. And it's something that just resonated with me. I put on about 10 kilos a couple of years ago. I was slowly putting on kilos after I retired. And I was coming home on the plane. I was really uncomfortable. You know, with my business shirt on, I'm sitting there. I'm, like, Fuck, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. Um, and that's it. I said, I've got to, I've got to start doing weight. something. And yeah. I'm not a gym person. So this is something I do at home. I go out in my shed, my man shed, and it's just body weight exercises, simple stuff. But the diet's all man stuff. So I love meat. Yeah. So it's all meat and veg. So most nights I smash broccoli, cauliflower, <laughs> sweet potato, and put it with some meat and, uh, so I've lost about ten kilos doing it, wow. but it's not—it's not like a diet. It's just a bit of exercise each day, and you still have a beer and had pizza last night. Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Michaelides, and our producer is Lauren Lepatko. Together, we're the co-founders of Neural. Our goal at Neural is to build your knowledge, skills, processes, tools, and mindset, which will ultimately make both you and I better individuals, professionals, business owners, or investors. Now, we do this with the podcast by interviewing unique individuals that have included venture capitalists, bodybuilders, hedge fund managers, political activists, comedians, tech founders, rappers, chefs, and restaurateurs, to name just a few. Our style, as you may notice, is one-on-one and quite conversational. It can go from 45 minutes all the way to two and a half hours long. I'm personally inspired by the likes of Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Charlie Rose, Oprah Winfrey, and Charlie Munger, who helped me name the podcast and in particular inspired me to create it and build your worldly wisdom, as Charlie would have coined it. If you'd like to learn more about previous guests, just hit each episode's profile on your podcast app or head to neural.com slash podcast. That is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast where you'll be able to find the podcast index. The first thing I'd love for you to do, which I'd really appreciate if you could do it, is subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you first access to future episodes and it will also go a long way to helping fellow-minded individuals find Uncommon. Doing so will just give us more clout for getting interesting or more famous guests on the podcast. So I encourage you to do that. The second thing I'd like you to do is leave us an invaluable review on Podchaser. Now, Podchaser is the sort of Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb of podcasts, and they've given Neural's subscribers priority access to their beta launch. So in two minutes, you can leave a review and just proceed to beta, B-E-T-A dot podchaser.com and type in the promo code uncommon when prompted. 
Um, alternatively, you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you're using. Or if you really want to, you really want to speak to me directly, um, you can send me an email. It's just jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at neural.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It's just at Neural. On Facebook, we typically try and do live videos for the interviews. Instagram, you'll notice there's quite a lot of promos um, and snapshots from the interview. And then Twitter will have previous articles that we've done. So now let's get into the episode. In this episode, we have for you one of Australia's prominent leadership mentors and athlete, Justin Peckett. Justin is an ex-AFL player for my beloved St Kilda Football Club and a partner of Leading Teams, a company that helps improve both leaders and high-performing teams. When it comes to leadership and high performance, I've always looked to military and sport for setting the standard. You've probably experienced or come across the typical workplace leader who has never truly earned your respect or commitment to the job. Instead, they generally lead by enforcing your respect through their position or their ability to stall your career progression. So I think the military and sporting clubs as a whole are just a different beast. You won't just be assigned leadership because you have tenor. You must demonstrate it. So how do military and sporting organizations encourage leadership? Well, I've read a lot of, of what goes on at the US Navy SEALs and they're known for having internal commandments like leadership as ownership. This has been popularized recently in the private sector and particularly by Silicon Valley. But what they mean is that taking ownership of everything in your world is a requirement of being a good leader. Complaining about outside forces impacting your life is not an excuse. They believe in the principle so stringently that there's another saying in the Navy SEALs that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Leadership is the highest, in my opinion, the highest leverage component of what makes a group of people completely effective or useless. And perhaps if you don't agree, maybe let's talk about the same-sex marriage debate in Australia. So whether you disagree or agree on its validity, the fact that our nation's leaders decided to not take ownership and have a free vote is a prime example of bad leadership. Their indecision will no doubt cost the Liberal Party their status as the ruling party, simply because they've shown their lack of backbone, but also it will cost our nation another $122 million plus interest and create a divisive media debate that will further drive both the left and right of politics apart, all because your leaders were beholden to minority groups and did not take ownership for decisions. I feel that In the Western world, we've all become blinded in blaming others or outside factors for our situation, and hence it mirrors the current political situation in both the US, the UK, and Australia now. Perhaps now you understand why I think Justin's work is so important, and maybe he'll spur you on to take little ownership in your own life. The key points we spoke about were, at the start, a lot about his connection to the St Kilda Football Club. Um, which I couldn't help. We spoke about ownership and empowerment in leadership, the importance of accountability, how leading teams, this company that Justin started, came about. We spoke about the recipe for a perfect leader, the Franken leader, as I think I put it, the challenges of learning to lead, team leaders, grievances and team turnarounds, where he looks for inspiration for leading teams, and then what he'd teach to a class 
of budding leaders. So I think if you want to apply leadership and take more ownership in your life, you'll really enjoy this episode. If you were hoping for more of the the footy stuff, um, as Justin's name may have implied, perhaps check out episode 28, which was with Rowan Connolly, and we spoke about AFL sport and journalism. But if you want the show notes, it'll just be in your app um, under this episode or head to neural.com slash podcast. So without any further ado or introduction, please enjoy this conversation with Justin Peckett. Uh, Justin, we are live. Thank you for joining me. No worries. Pleasure. Um, I think with every guest, we like to know a bit about who they are. So what do you think you're most well known for? Um, apart from the size of my nose, um, most well known for, uh, well, I've played a bit of footy in my time. Um, just I guess bit, 250 uh, games. Yeah. just uh, So I think that would be what I'd be most well known for. My closest friends would... Uh, know me for a few other things, but I'm not sure that's a, a conversation for now. <laughs> but football would be my thing, I guess. So, yeah, footy, footy and um, what, what are you doing at – how did leading teams come about, I guess? Or what is leading teams? Leading teams is a business that helps other businesses, teams, organisations, individuals to improve their performance. So it's about helping people who um, are trying to achieve – common goals, targets, basically function and, and work together. Um, and they have a particular focus on dynamics, which is people, relationships, communication, behaviour, leadership, you know, personalities and how all that impacts a team's performance. Okay. In a in a positive way or a productive way or in a at the other end of the scale, <laughs> um, where teams can be a little bit dysfunctional or completely dysfunctional. Yeah. So I was first exposed to leading teams back in about 1994-5 okay. as a player at the St Kilda Football Club. Yeah. And so were they had they come into the club to do a program? They had. All, uh, Ray McLean, who was the founder of leading teams, he'd been doing work elsewhere and St Kilda was his first uh, crack at the AFL or at the AFL level. Really? Um, so he'd done a lot of work um, uh, with central districts over in – South Australia, who were a basket case many years ago, and now they're one of the most successful clubs, you know, of all time, really, in terms of um, AFL football. Yeah, uh, and so had some success, some you know, a high level of success over there, and then came to St Kilda and said, "Can I have a crack?" And Stan Ells was the coach at the time, and said, "Yep." And Stan was ahead of his time in terms of coaching because yeah. he was a coach. While he could be quite um, hard and direct. Uh, he was also um, big on empowerment and he loved the fact that he could create an environment where the players could have a great, a greater level of ownership over the direction that we we're going in. Yeah. And so that was a, a bit um, unique and new and uh, Ray turned up and introduced us all to leading teams in the program. Okay. Um, so that was way back then and I'm still, still there. with Ray and at leading teams. So what what did that look like when when you went through this, I guess – you guys were the pilot, really, St Kilda. Yep. So what did that look like? What, what's involved in in all of that? Yeah. I mean, back then, I guess in an AFL environment, you can be a little bit more, um, well, it's a cutthroat industry. Um, and back then, what did it look like? A bit of a wake-up call in terms of, you know, line in the sand type of stuff. Where are we at right now? We were a basket case, we, you know, winning wooden spoons. We had great players, but we weren't a great team. Um, you know, we got rewarded or we rewarded each other as players for things that we did 
off the field, not necessarily on the field. So Saturday nights or you yeah. know, Sunday Arvo sessions or footy trips and all that sort of stuff was not not for every player, but you know, for a core group of us. Um, you know, we we liked that. We enjoyed doing that and sometimes that got in the way of actually playing good team footy. So for a lot of us it was a bit of a um uh, a brutal um, awakening around what high performance could look for look like for us, and and I guess getting us to understand our role in where the club was at, mm. um, and and getting us to think about well, what role do we want moving forward, and do we actually want to be a part of it? And so there's a lot of self reflection individually and as a team. You know, what are we doing well? How would we describe ourselves? How would our opposition describe us? And all all the things that we're coming up with were quite, uh, you know. Brutal in terms yeah. of an assessment, um, and and then it was like, well, okay, well, what do you want it to be like? You know, ideally, you know, when you exit, whenever you exit, and we all exit as you know, players, what do you want it to have looked like? You know, um, and there's a huge gap in where we wanted to be and where we're at right now. And so then yeah. it's just, a, and this is the beauty of it. It's all if if this is what you want now, well, you've got it. Well done. Do you want to just keep going this way, or do you want? And and there's enough of us that said, you know what, perhaps we should invest in. Addressing our culture, our behaviour, you know the way that we that we perform, um, and and so uh, there was enough of us to sit, that sat there and said, yeah, this is a goal. We need to do this, and enough of us invested in it, and not everyone did, and that's part of the challenge. And you know that's yeah. you know, part of the challenge of a team and the the leaders of the team, and and we invested pretty heavily, and we got some really um, good outcomes quickly. Yeah, so um, so ninety five. Where did St Kilda? Finish on the ladder. I can't remember. But it was low. It was low. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was. Um, again, as I said, I think um, if it wasn't a wooden spoon, it would have been pretty close to a wooden spoon. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, but then by, by 1997, we're playing in a grand final. Yeah. So it's remarkable. It's a quick turnaround. Yeah. And a lot of things need to happen. It's not just you know a leading teams program. It's it's um, you know who you recruit, who you get rid of. Um, Having your most influential people, players on board with the new direction, yeah, um, and you still need you still need to have skills, and you still need to be fit, and you know um, you can't have too many injuries. So there's you know there's all that that needs to go on as well, um, and so things were just changing. Things were getting better, and the environment was getting better, and there was high standards and high expectation, and we didn't become perfect citizens, and. Um, <laughs> You know, we didn't win every game. We didn't win the grand final in '97. We still got beaten. But you know, the leading teams model is about improvement. So where we come from was a really low base, and where we we got to was a uh, at the top yeah. without having won the the second premiership. So you think um, it, it sort of seems like it just sort of flipped the mindset of what the players had. Like obviously there were skilled footballers, and as you're saying, you weren't gelling as much as you thought as a team, but. Do you think that maybe it just flipped your mindset into being about playing football but also being an improving sort of unit constantly and that had you know that impacted the dramatic effect the two years afterwards you were playing in a grand final yeah I have no doubt so you know again if you get enough people and enough people with influence to f- perhaps the ones that needed to flip because you're going to have influence and be really productive. And we had certainly had a lot of players like that who were trying their best, but then you had some rat bags down the other end. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes I was a rat bag and sometimes I was somewhere in between. And sometimes I like to think that I helped to influence and drive, you know, improvement and, and high performance. So there's no doubt about the mindset. It's just about getting enough people at the right end so that you can drag those along or 
um, the ones that still choose not to buy in become a, absolute outsiders and a minority with no influence and so we can still perform well and then ultimately what will happen is they'll behave their way out or we'll make the decision for them and say well we've done everything we can for you we're going here yeah you're choosing not to buy in well and so stand to his credit um even after 97 we played in the grand final i mean he was he was thinking about who do we need to bring in and who do we need to now get rid of yeah. um, and some of the players that left and some were told to leave and some put their hand up and, and looked for other opportunities. Um, they were really good players yeah. that most teams would love to have. Uh, and, and that's just part of the evolution of a team that's going to progress. So um, so mindset, absolutely. Um, and, and as I said, you still need a bit of luck on your side. You still need people to be fit and yeah. you still need a game plan. You still need to get stronger and do all those sort of things. So I found um, – it, is, it was easier for me to change the way that I was going about it because I was now surrounded by more and more. It was, it was harder to ignore what was happening and say, well, I'd rather just keep doing what I'm doing because you wouldn't get a game. The the scrutiny that you're under from from your peers, it was just too tough to ignore and and, and, and not buy in. So yeah. um, I became fitter, I became stronger. And, and then you, that just you know, perpetuates and you, you love what you're doing and you love the fact that we're winning more than we're losing and – you love the fact that you're now in an environment where there's a high level of expectation. You know you're going to be challenged if you don't meet them. Um, and so that was driven in part through the leading teams model and raised work, but also having you know, key leaders who bought into it heavily and um, helped drive it. Yeah. I, I look, I think it's quite remarkable what you guys did. I was only seven in 97. I remember crying the whole way, right, <laughs> the whole so. way home for, after that grand final. My old man always Well, you says, and me both because I cried all, all yeah. the way home after that grand final as well. I, I think, you know, yeah, it, it was a bit unlucky. The probability of losing both um, Spider Everett and, um, God, who was the... the so Laser, Laser yeah, Vidovic. Laser Vidovic. Yeah. That was just that hurt unlucky. Us. Yeah. Yep. But also Darren Jarman. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Yeah. He he played all right. Uh, there's a few <laughs> others that played well for Adelaide. And, yeah. To their credit, I mean, it's all about the day. And, it really and on is. the day, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but it, it is. Um, uh, we just weren't good enough on the day. Um, and at the time, it's devastating. So, I had never played in one, um, and and so exciting the week, the build up, and then you're playing, and it's unbelievable, and. Then the siren goes, and it's the worst experience you've ever had. So, yeah. and at the time you think, I mean, you're only seven. I was, I'm a bit older than that, so <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling a bit old right now. But um, you know, at the time you think, and you assume that you're just going to. That's well, not that it's okay, but you go, well, we're going to play in another one, so you know, we'll get another chance. But yeah, history will show that um, I certainly didn't get another chance. Yeah. Do you? Um- do you sort support St Kilda outside of um, your time at the club? I do. Yeah. Um, I was born into a St Kilda, St Kilda family. Mad family. Yeah. Um, I embraced that as a as a young kid. So I used to go to all the games at Moorabbin. Used to have my duffel coat with all my favourite players' names down the down the arm and the numbers on the back. And grew up barracking for St Kilda. And uh, yeah, to finally, well, not to finally, but to actually get the opportunity to go and play, that was an unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you know, not not every kid gets that opportunity these days in the way the system works. But back then, it was I was living in the zone at Frankston, and basically there was a line that was either St Kilda or Hawthorne, and you can either say I was terribly unlucky to live on the line that goes to St Kilda because if you go to Hawthorne, potentially you're playing a few premierships. I know, yeah. Um, but I'm 
I, I loved my time at St Kilda and yeah. as a kid growing up, barring for him, it was, it was special. And with all my kids now, I mean, the whole fa- it's a non-negotiable. It's just <laughs> a part of, you know, if you're born a pecket, you, uh, you you follow St Kilda. Yeah, it's it's funny that, we, as I was saying before, um, you know, before our chat with Titus O'Reilly, it's one of those things that you sort of, you, you're definitely indoctrinated from a very early age. Mm. It's, it's, it's impossible to... Um, to switch teams you know like people say oh why do you support St Kilda they haven't been that successful in terms of premierships but you just can't do it you could never I don't know it's just how anyone could could flip it's just indoctrinated from that early age yeah Yeah. it's about your environment and uh yeah the kids my kids wouldn't even worry about or bother bringing up the notion of perhaps following someone else so um they, they love the Saints and they've They've seen some really good times with the Saints. I mean, you know, again, we haven't won that elusive second premiership, but you know, over the years, and there's been a few dips here and there, but over the years, you know, there's been lots of finals and a few grand finals, and so yeah, um, 2005 to probably 2010 was a great period. Absolutely, and yeah. that was that was sustained, you know, high performance over a number of years, which is hard to do. Yeah, um, but it just shows that winning premierships is even harder, and then. Again, whether it's luck or whatever it is, but it, you know where you get drafted to, or if you got drafted in that period at to Geelong, or you know again, you know Hawthorne or Sydney in the last 10, 15 years, you yeah you've been in a good position to win um, at least a, a premiership. But same with the Saints, so yeah, and they'll get back there sooner rather than later, which is yeah, which is good. I'm quietly confident. <laughs> yeah, good. A what one thing you mentioned before um, about having everyone in a team buy in it. That was one of the things because I, I love reading a lot of leadership books around, um, uh, but that mainly come from like the military, like particularly yep. like Navy SEALs and stuff like that. I grabbed yep. I grabbed a couple beforehand, but yep. um, one of the things they talk about in particular is uh, ownership. And you mentioned before about people buying in. It seems that that is probably the most I don't know, um, beneficial way of getting something done in a culture because it sort of aligns with uh, the cognitive bias called the commitment and the consistency principle. So the moment you get people to buy into something and take ownership and commit to it, their ability to retract from that is very limited, Yep. Um, particularly once they've done it. Mm. Is that is that a crucial thing for you when you go and meet with with clients and setting out a new program or or a system or a culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the leading teams model is an empowerment model, um, and so that does uh, require though the leader to be open to empowerment. Mm. And so, so the empowerment model and the thing that you talk about is one way of going about it. And, yes, it can bring about a greater level of commitment and buy-in and investment from from the troops, so to speak, which makes it harder for them to opt out. Um, but it's not the only way, and, and you can have successful teams and, and teams that are successful over a long period of time where it's not an empowered environment. So, so we're an option for, for leaders in particular who – are open to creating an environment where their people can have that greater level of ownership and buy-in and play key roles in driving, you know, the performance. So when I when I meet with a CEO or an MD or you know a leader of a team, um, I just make them really aware around what our model's about and and challenge them up front around: Are you up for empowerment? Right. And and you might be an autocratic leader and and had some really good results, but perhaps the makeup of your teams changed. You know, the the environment's changed. Um, 
your competitors have changed and, and you might see the value in, you know what, this perhaps needs to be less about me and now a bit more about the team where I can get greater results and greater buy-in. It's, it's, so even though you're an autocratic leader by default or that's been your preference, and you, I could still work with you because at least you're open to and might challenge you a little bit because yeah. the spotlight goes on the leader um, you know, when you're talking about team performance. Um, but if you're an autocratic leader and you don't value empowerment, we're, we're probably not going to engage with you and you're not going to want to engage with us. Right. But empowerment isn't about just hand over the keys and, and, yeah. and the lunatics run the asylum. It's uh, make no mistake, as the leader, I still have the right to come in and make decisions where I need to make decisions. And, and there'll be a clear um, split of, yeah, you own this, but perhaps I own this or this is, you know, so if you're talking about a football club, you know, we, we work with the leadership team to, and we challenge it. To, you know, how much do you want in terms of ownership? You know, let's challenge the coach and challenge the executive and the board around as leaders. We want this much. And then almost be a negotiation where the coach will say, yeah, we're happy for you to own that and drive that and you'll be responsible for that. However, we'll be responsible for this. And that's clearly, if this happens, that's now the board that will own that. But in an environment where there's you know, strong relationships and high levels of trust, you'll have members of the board who will, or the chairman or the pre- who will consult with, the captain right, and the coach. So they'll all come together still and have conversations, but we'll understand that in this instance the board's making the decision or the, the coaches are actually going to make the decision. Actually, fellas, as a leadership team, you make the decision uh, and that can be replicated in the workplace where you've got a, a, a leader who will bring the team together and we'll have a conversation and under empowerment you still get to feel like you're taking ownership and driving and making decisions, which you are, uh, but there'll be some examples where oh, you invite me in to make the decision or this stuff's mine, I'll take that, I'll make that decision. But but it's not devoid of any communication or understanding. And yeah, of course. So everyone walks out then back to their respective parts of the business and they fully understand the decision that's been made, feel like they've had some input, and then what will happen is you'll get a consi- – well, again, in theory, yeah. ideally, what should happen is you then get um, you know unified messaging back to your business. You'll have key people behaving in a way that's congruent with the decision, you know, supportive, all those sorts of things. Yeah. So, so the empowerment – is basically people need to feel as if they can take action without having to check in with their leader every single time. Yeah. But they might be aware that there'll be particular decisions that they know that they're actually not supposed to be making. So yeah. that, that, that goes up the line, but they, they do know what they own and and what they're responsible for. Yeah. Um, but, but the leader can still come in at any point in time. So just an example of that might be you – you want to create an empowered environment, you can almost say we're going to create an empowered environment, this is where we're going, it's not negotiable and you get opportunity to, to buy in or to opt out. Um, but make no mistake, again, um, as a leader, I, I'll have the right to come in and out as as I need to. So yeah. it's one way to go. It's not for everybody. Um, do, do you think though or how – I guess the one thing reading all these – military leadership books, um, they sort of mirror what's what happened in the private sector, particularly like Silicon Valley, about three to four years later. Um, the biggest thing being what you said, that empowerment and I guess a pushing of ownership down the chain. Um, how much do you think success is reliant on that? Because it seems that in this world that we live in now where things are changing so rapidly, I don't know how you know, uh, those autocratic leaders and in those sort of company structures, they can actually move with the pace that the economy is moving. Mm. Do you have any views on that? It's a choice. 
Yeah. And, and so, again, as a leader who's autocratic, and, and I might only have some really short-term goals, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're matched with the team or the organisation. So yeah. um, I might feel, well, why would I open my short-term goals and being able to achieve those? So my CV looks good when I'm you know, moving to my next job. Yeah. Why would I open that up to to others? To others? Yeah. I want to control that. Yeah. So, so for me, again, you know, regardless of what's going on around a leader, it's 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 a choice that they make. Yeah. Um, Would you have any counter argument to someone who says that or is thinking that in their head? That 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 they focus on themselves and the short term by. Uh, there's consequences to that. Yeah. So, um, if you're really clear that that's the strategy for you, then go for it. Yeah. But don't be surprised if there's some consequences or things drop out. Based on that strategy, yeah, and 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 that may warrant you to think about changing your strategy or your style, but you might say, "Except I know that this will happen as a result of me taking one hundred percent ownership of everything." Yeah, but I'm I'm up for that. I'm ha- I'm happy for that. Yeah, because um, I've had quite of invo- a little bit of involvement in sort of the startup tech sector here, and it's it's intriguing to see when you get these new founders start these tech companies how you know pervasive they can be in their decision making and fair enough because you know you've raised capital you've given away a decent share of the company you know shit's on the line Mm. but i just feel that if you're going to be a good business leader you should be focusing on you know business strategy and policy and what you're doing with the wider you know working on the business as opposed to in it and making decisions for people you've hired anyway yeah you know yeah um so i always find that really intriguing and particularly with older companies i mean I'm lucky in my current job where I'm able to go out and meet different types of companies and it's just very intriguing to see the ones that have flipped to that sort of empowerment model versus the ones that still sit on the autocratic, like rules-only model, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and potentially, you know, they've, they've got good results previously doing that. So Yeah, and they don't want to stuff it up. Absolutely. Yeah. So, again, for me, it, it becomes a choice. Um, um, and if you've been led by someone who's been autocratic and you've won premierships or you've, you know, your you profit and, and all that, you know, all the success that you wanted, you've got it, well, mm. and then you get an opportunity to go and lead, well, it, it makes sense that you're probably going to lead similar, in a similar way to, to how you've been led when you've achieved all those things. So I, I reckon you see it in, in, um, in the AFL too with the coaching, new coaches, you know, whether they're younger coaches, first-time coaches at senior level. Where even if they've been part of an empowered environment and now that they've got their own gig as a coach, some of those coaches tend to still, yeah. in the early days, take full control. Yeah. They don't necessarily, as a rank outsider, um, my observation would be that some of them have reasonably tight control early and then as they progress and get a bit more comfortable with themselves and happy perhaps to increase the ownership, they tend to then... You know, let go of the reins. Yeah, yeah. They uh, probably realise after the first year or two how much work it takes. And, yeah. Uh, well, if it's all about kill you, themselves, yeah. if they're going to you know continue to do it that way. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I, I work with a lot of leaders who perhaps whinge or complain or vent about lack of time and you know um, the stress and sick leave or whatever it might be that they need to take and the fact that they don't see their families enough or they have put on weight and they're not. You know, fit as what they used to be, yeah. Um, and, and sometimes they're open to looking at a new way to lead, and that that's the catalyst for them to understand. Well, we've got people here that have knowledge and experience. Why wouldn't I let them own some of that responsibility? 
But then you'll have a few others that they wear it as a badge of honour. Yeah. This whole place is about me. <laughs> I love the fact that I've got no time for anything else. Um, and so, you know, when I leave, everything potentially will fall apart. Yeah. And that's a sign because I'm not there anymore. Yeah. And, and so I reckon there's a few out there that wear that as a bit of a badge of honour. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, the challenge with working with leaders is trying to get them to understand that they may not get their moment in the sun, that, that leadership is about what you're going to leave behind. Exactly. And so I'm working with leaders around their legacy. Okay. And, and so the conversation we're having now is the fact that some leaders couldn't give a stuff about what their, the legacy is. I'm grabbing all the wins while I'm here and when I go, I'll get my payout or whatever it needs to be and I'll, I'll move on to something else. Yeah. Um, again, that's okay. That's the choice. Um, whereas some leaders that I'm working with, uh, you know, I'm challenging them to think more deeply around their legacy. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that must be a crucial thing that then must be beneath the surface there because, I mean, you know, the whole male, psychologically, the whole male, and if you're particularly dealing with male leaders, the whole purpose for them is about status, whether they like it or not. That's just the male biology. So, you know, having status through legacy or money is, a you know, one of those big things that society places value on at the moment. So it's intriguing. Yeah, it must be intriguing trying to, you know, start those conversations with them. Yeah. Oh, well, again, it's um, you ask a few key questions to them to get them to think a bit more deeply around their leadership and what it looks like and, and what do you want to leave behind when you exit because everyone's going to exit. Mm. You know, what do you want it to look like and do you want it to be that when you go from your position, everyone sort of says, well, thank fuck he's gone. We can start <laughs> from scratch again and build it up again or are they going to be still doing things in 10, 15, 50, 100 years because that's what you introduced and it's a cultural thing and, and, and it might get tweaked by the next leader but it won't be scrapped and, and you won't have to start from scratch again. It's We're doing things because that's the way you know, our former leader and it's productive and it, you know, it's all those things. Um, so that's the, that's the, the conversation I have with a lot of leaders around, you know, around legacy. I mean, I, not to get too morbid, but I, I was at a, um, a service yesterday for a friend of mine who passed away a couple of weeks ago and, you know, all the speeches were around, um, you know, key words to describe him and, you know, the people's feelings about, you know, the impact he had on them. And then you look around the room and there's, you know, a few hundred people, um, you know, that's the impact he's had. You know, he's got his family sitting there, his young kids. And so a lot of it is around, you know, his legacy. And so, you know, you can actually, um, as best you can or as much as you can, try and determine what you want that to look like before you exit, yeah. before you go, um, both in life and, and in business. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, for me it was a, a lesson I probably learned a little bit too late as a player because, you know, if I thought more deeply around how I wanted to be described as a player post my career, that may have helped me to sharpen me up a little bit a bit earlier than than what I did. Um, I certainly changed my behaviour, et cetera, throughout my career, but I reckon I could have done it a couple of years earlier, yeah. which, which perhaps would have helped drive us to even more success and left an even stronger legacy post my, my career. Do you think um, is legacy a big thing for you then now with what you're doing? Um, it is with my work. It is uh, with my family and my friends. I'm 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 really clear around um, you know how I want to be described you know as a professional as a as a you know as a father and you know husband and all those sorts of things as a mate and and those sorts of things uh, and that again I'm I'm not perfect I still make poor decisions here and there but um, don't we all <laughs> yeah. But but I it sharpens me up a little bit with with you know my own personal trademark and 
you know, what I want to stand for and how I want, you know, when they are putting me in the ground or scattering, actually I probably wouldn't get put in the ground, I'd get scattered you know, in the <laughs> ocean. But, you know, as they're scattering me, you know, I, I try and picture, you know, what do I want people to be saying about me, you know, and, and, and am I behaving in a way now that actually is congruent with what I want at the end? You know, how do I want, you know, with seven kids and two girls, five boys, you know, how do I want my sons to, you know, um, well, what, what do I want their view to be about building relationships and how they communicate and how they, you know, in terms of work ethic and all those sorts of things, you know. So I'm really conscious of that now as opposed to having no clarity about it or thought about it and then one day I'll exit and perhaps it won't, I won't leave the legacy that perhaps I could have. Yeah. Do you, um, Going back to the, I guess, the ownership or empowerment um, aspect of leading, how do people institute that? You know, how do they integrate it? Because, you know, it's it's easy, let's say, if they get up on, a fr- you know, the Friday afternoon drinks that most corporate workplaces have and they say, okay, we're going to do this now. No more rules. This is, you know, you're in charge of this and they set everything out. How do they actually institute it? Because, like, as an example, for, for years I um, – I've always sort of every six months I set out goals that I want to achieve personally and um, I, I sort of realized in the last year that I don't have a way of checking back on those and really instituting it. I might write it at the start of the six months and then six months later I'll look at it again and I'll be like, oh, well, I haven't really done that in that way that I wanted mm. but instead now I've integrated it um, in my like a weekly journal so I can go back and yep. check them and yep. measure how I'm going along with that. Yep. So how can teams, do you think, um, institute this sort of stuff in a way that is not just fluff? Yeah. Um, well, it's about accountability okay. and about having some rigor yeah. around accountability. So so there's no point setting goals or having high expectations or, or declaring as a team, here's what we expect from each other. If you don't, then hold each other accountable. Yeah. So, so the work that we do in our model is really around set the expectation. So, you know, we call it a trademark, a, a purpose, a trademark, and a set of agreed behaviours. So that becomes a framework for everything. Okay. So th- this is just principles that someone will set out. It'll be why do we exist as a team? What's our main purpose? What's our trademark? So in a couple of words or in a short sentence, you know, what do we stand for? Okay. And then what's what's the as an example, what's the three or four key behaviours? Regardless of your tenure, your experience, your personality, your motivation, how much you're getting paid, et cetera, et cetera, the expectation is we have these three or four key behaviours that we'll, we expect from everyone and that will drive us to be the team that we want to be, achieve our trademark, which then helps us deliver on why we actually exist as a team. Okay. And that then is used for everything. So it supports your strategy. Um, it, it's used for recruitment, induction, how you then do your job and eventually how you exit, who leads, uh, how you lead. And so, again, going back to the empowerment, the team would then identify that. They own it. It's their words, which is great. Yeah. Um, and you often hear people go or talk about, oh, yeah, this is just a motherhood statement for me. And when I hear that, or it's fluff, or they're, catch- uh, you know, they're um, you know, just catchy words, they're not – the only thing that makes them um, uh, a um, fl- – or it makes it fluff or it makes it um, – you know, a motherhood statement is there's no accountability and we actually don't live it. Yeah. So whether you're writing goals down for yourself every six months, that that's one step of the process. Mm. Who do you share them with? So yeah. have you got key people in your life that will, you know, will be open and honest with you and, and say, well, hang on, how does that line up with you achieving that goal? Yeah. So it's about being willing and able to 
uh, open yourself up, be vulnerable, ask for feedback. So have, fee- feedback loops well, are feedback, important. Feedback is a part of accountability. And yeah. so it, in its simplest form, it's you and I, if we're in a team, we've got the clear expectation. It's about you and I being able to engage with each other in a genuine way in the workplace around expectation. Okay. Um, um, productive, counterproductive. So it's about rewarding each other. Yeah, and your and your peers and your, and your team. It's also challenging behaviour. So you know, you challenge behaviour, you support the person. So there's one way of accountability, and there'll be other mechanisms for accountability because um, uh, you'll have KPIs, you'll have you know in a in a in a business they'll have you know process and policy and yeah you know surveys and there's a whole range of things that already probably exist. We take it to another level by creating an environment where the team can actually engage with each other peer to peer in feedback, genuine. Open, honest feedback. Sometimes that's done with the whole team. Sometimes it's just a, a one-on-one structured or informal conversation. So accountability is the key. So if you're a team, it's about reviewing and then okay. you review against your mechanics and your bottom line and your tasks, but you also review now with the teams that we work with against your trademark, your behaviours, your relationships, provide opportunities for feedback, commit, go back to work, come back, review. Um, so in the AFL, they'll review each week because they've got a game each week. But in yeah. corporate teams, they might be a project, it could be a, a task they're working on, or it just could be the, once a month they get together and they review how we're going. Yeah, let's let's spend some time in our relationships. Let's give some feedback. Let's look at your plan. You know, let's look at some of the decisions you're making, some of your challenges, some of your issues, and let's engage in feedback, develop strategy, help each other. Then all we'll go back out in the business. You know, hopefully better off for being part of the team. That okay. Is, I, which is happy to engage at that level. So expectation, high level of accountability, and then whether it be sport or corporate, the third element is you've got to have leaders who, who are prepared to step up and demand that you meet the expectation. Yeah, okay. So accountability doesn't work unless you've got leaders who are prepared to do it themselves, step up and demand, or create an environment where other people can step up and demand. So yeah. I, don't, I don't have the leader tag. It's not in, I'm not on the org chart as a leader, but – We've created an environment where I can still engage with my peers around accountability. That's me showing leadership. Okay. So so if you're going to look at high-performing organisations or teams, they would have, if we're going to strip it right back, they would have those three key elements, high level of expectation, roles, responsibilities, but also behaviour and culture, et cetera, et cetera, high level of accountability, process, policy, mechanical things, but also accountability through conversation and feedback, and then they'd have high-demand leadership. Yeah. So it seems the, mo- the most crucial st- starting point is – um, when you're facilitating a client is you set that trademark, you integrate things that measure that, um, you know, that accountability aspect and all the other mechanics that go beneath that. And, again, what you said with, with the leaders is making sure you've got people and ensuring they're going to uphold what all that mm. stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it could be the designated leader. It could be someone who's influential in the team. Okay. They're not the designated leader, but they're highly influential. Right. Uh, and and not much happens unless they give it the tick off. So, we've got to work out who they are or who that person is. Are they on board? What's our strategy to get them on board? If they're on board, great. We can move forward pretty quickly. If they're not on board, well, then that that's, you know, we might have to, you know, work a bit harder to yeah. you know, get them on board. But, um, the 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 ability just to have clarity around what we stand for and what are the expectations and then having an environment where we can engage each other around that is is really what our model's about. Yeah. And in your experience with those three sort of key areas, um, whether it's a dysfunctional uh, company or not, how much do you find that people have actually already got in place? Yeah, look... It- 
of those three. Yeah. Um, well, if it's dysfunctional, there's probably not a lot of accountability <laughs> or high demand leadership, but there might be some expectations there, whether they're written or um, not. Um, look, I, I, when I you know talk clients through that uh, in, a, in a team session, I'll often ask, so how are we tracking against those three things at the minute? Have we got expectations? Yes, we've got expectations. What do they look like? Oh, we've got values, we've got behaviours, we've got this, this. Okay, great. So uh, how do we go in terms of accountability? Oh, not great. Because I might ask them, okay, what are, what are some behaviours that we see and accept in our team but we know they're counterproductive? Right. Oh, I have sometimes I can fill up you know, a couple of whiteboards full of behaviour that is counterproductive but we don't actually do anything about it. Yeah. So we don't say anything. So in effect, I could come and, and I say this sometimes, in effect, you're saying that I could come and work here, I could do all of this negative or counterproductive stuff on the board and no one would challenge me. I'd still <laughs> get paid, I'd still have a job and, and you get nods of the head. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the gap, that's the area of improvement. Let's let's really tighten up the expectation, but we've got a bit of work to do on accountability and what that looks like. Some people won't like a high level of accountability. Some people won't like the fact that accountability now might look like it's engaging in conversations with each other. Um, and that's that's the challenge for the for me as a facilitator. It's a challenge for the leader. So we've got to do a lot of work around you know, what's that going to look like. And so the work that you do might be over a longer period of time if there's an appetite for it, or you might have a really quick session where there's no uh, appetite for it, and we're done pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, so again, comes down to choice. And I've worked with some leaders who have, have said we're up for it, and then when you pull back some of the or rip off some of the band aids, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the leaders realise how much work's going to be in this. Yeah, no, uh, no, no. I'm now yeah, not too sure I really want to engage and, and go down this track. So yeah. it's interesting um, and that's why I love what I do because um, – you, you get to know the, the true elements of the person. You, you can, yeah, pretty quickly. Um, I, I mean, again, one of the great things about this and in terms of accountability, a lot of what we're talking about in terms of culture is just behaviour that gets rewarded. So, again, if I can do all this counterproductive stuff, I'm getting rewarded for it. I'm not necessarily getting clapped and bags of money as a bonus for behaving in a, in a counterproductive way, although some some might in some organisations. Um, but it's the beauty of it is that behaviour is observational and so we don't need to make it too complex other than here's some clutter around what we want to stand for as a team and what we think it looks like and what we expect it to look like. Now just be on the lookout and when you see behaviour that is in line with what we want, let them know. If you see behaviour that's outside of that, you've got to have the ability as a high-performing team, to, to challenge it in the right way, the right time, you know, all of those sorts of things need to come into play and there'll be different strategies to do that. Yeah. And that's that's the stuff that we help our clients with. Of course, yeah. Do you, How did you – you said before uh, earlier that um, you got involved with leading teams. It was 94, 95. Mm. Uh, were you part of the, the leadership group then at the club? No. I was a, a rat bag who was – doing some stuff that wasn't productive or conducive to elite team footy. And and so um, I wasn't, uh, but I I guess over a period of time I thought this would – I thought this would actually help us and help me as an individual right. on and off the field. And I thought this is something – I can see how this is going to help us as a team. Um, what, what was the catalyst for that? What was the aha moment? Um, I Just reflecting on my own behaviour, being asked these questions by Ray – you know, twenty odd years ago, which are the same sort of questions we now ask our clients, or still ask our clients now. It just, it just forces you to think about your own behaviour and your own role in where the team's at. And I just thought, oh, shit, I'm actually not too happy with that. And I, I got sick of 
walking in on a Monday morning perhaps and not always necessarily being able to look my teammates in the eye. Mm. That was probably about it when I thought, you know what, time to change. Yeah. And I had a couple of close t- uh, mates slash teammates who were probably getting sick of my behaviour as well, you know, holding them back. So, again, a bit of feedback um, you know, inside the framework um, and and just your own self sort of realisation that, shit, you know, if I continue, I'm probably not going to have a very long career here and yeah. I don't want to be the bloke who could have, would have, should have, um, you know, I I need to make some change. So that probably from yeah, thinking about it now upon reflection, that was probably a moment of walking in and just not f- feeling great because I didn't feel like I looked my teammates in the eye. Yeah. And do you – what was some of the, I guess, early – you know, were you working regularly? Because you, you were playing footy up to 2006. So yeah. what, what did working with leading teams look like over that period? Yeah, so so working with Ray, uh, there was a handful of the players who um, – it's a part of Ray's program and, again, this is things that we still do with AFL clubs. It's about um, you know, developing players as whole people so they exit, again, better off for having been inside the organisation. Yeah. Um, so so Ray's stuff, while well, the leading team's work is still needs to be linked to on-field performance. So our belief is that, you know, as you work on yourself as a person and get that balance right, that you can play better footy. Yeah. Um, and so the work that I was doing with Ray in the early days um, was he would he skilled up a number of us that were interested enough in doing some part-time work. Okay. And so we started running um, life skill programs in uh, schools right. and Indigenous communities and in local communities. You know, so – uh, as a player, to go and work with at-risk kids. And it wasn't one-off stuff, so this was repeat work. So I was doing repeat right. work in prisons. I was doing repeat work with at-risk kids. I was doing repeat work in Indigenous communities. And that and that's pretty confronting stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so the skills and the resilience um, and your, your, um, your, you know, your willingness to, to put yourself out there, make yourself a bit vulnerable, um, you know, talk about your own experiences, share some of your own mistakes – to try and influence the people you're working with to perhaps think about their life and where they're going. But at the same time, when you're doing that, you, you can't help but reflect still on what you're doing. Of course, and so, yeah. So there's a win-win there. So from a selfish point of view, I liked it because I felt it was making me a better person. You know, not overnight, but I felt that I was going to be heading in the right direction. I was going to become a better person. Um, and I felt it wasn't a, a soapbox type thing where you came in and just stood up and Certificated. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. I was I was generally working with some people around helping them to develop some skills to improve some things that they need to improve on. Yeah. Fascinating work to work with kids and, and it's great working with kids and it's great working with at-risk kids and it's great working in Indigenous communities. They all have different, you know, um, challenges that you need to deal with and then working with the prisons was, you know, brilliant. And, and so I was doing that while I was a player and so, you know, Leading teams and Ray started working with a number of AFL clubs and, and other sporting uh, organisations. So basically what he ended up building was a, a, a huge network of elite athletes who had skills to facilitate and go out and run you know, meaningful community-based programs. Yeah. So I started to, I guess, rise through the ranks. And so I, 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 my skill set got to a point where I'd go out and I'd supervise other athletes running sessions. So I'd sit in the back of the room. If they needed me, I'd jump in and help. If they didn't, I'd be sitting there just making observations around the facilitation and debrief with them so they were developing their skills. And so you know, that was developing me as a leader as a man- in terms of management skills and my ability to give feedback. So so I just continued to do that uh, while I was a player. And then I started doing some 
uh, of that with the club uh, sponsors. Okay. Uh, and and uh, towards the end of my career, I was running uh, feedback sessions and trademark sessions with the club uh, uh, administration. So I was running feedback sessions for the CEO and the executive team and the staff and those sorts of things. So as a player, um, you know, that's probably a little bit unique, but um, uh, I was doing that right up until I retired and then I retired and then after uh, a little bit of a break, I joined leading teams full-time. Okay. If um, I'm intrigued and I was just thinking this, as you mentioned then about leaders, if you could create like a, I don't know, like a Franken leader, you know, you could combine like different parts of different leaders to create the ultimate leader, who would you combine into that? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, not, yeah, I off the top of my head, I, I guess I don't think, and I don't think I'd want to build the perfect leader. I just don't, I think part of leadership is the fact that you do make mistakes and you're flawed and a little bit and... So for me, it's not necessarily about a, a particular person. It's just more about the characteristics. Mm-hmm. So, um, but who who are the people that that you respect in terms of leaders over the the many years? Yeah. Again, a lot of it would be not necessarily designated leaders. It was just people that I've come across who I've I've gravitated towards. Um, who I found to be influential in a really productive way, who cared, who showed interest. So I don't necessarily want to name names because I know I'll leave someone <laughs> out and all those sorts of things. So, again, for me it's more about what I value in in leadership and I think it's people that um, you trust, they're good for their word, they're genuine. And that's a really important one. And I found with clients recently the genuine element is the bit that they you can see, see they're thinking deeply around that because you know, as a leader – Particularly a designated leader, or you know, um, if if people don't feel that you're genuine, I reckon you've got some issues, right? Because so you're saying you're talking about like a CEO, as yeah. Example. So you know, on the org chart, it says that I'm the leader. So, but I think if you're not genuine, if people don't get a sense that you're genuine, I think you know you've got issues with, you know, well, I think you've got a whole heap of issues, yeah, um, in terms of your leadership in particular, yeah. Um, and so a lot of work that I'm doing with leaders is around getting to think deeply and you can see them in the sessions thinking deeply around, oh, hang on, would people think that I'm genuine when I'm having conversations with them? Now, when I ask about how their day's going or uh, yeah. how their partner's going or when I'm, when I'm trying to give them direction or feedback, are they thinking that I'm genuine here or are they thinking, oh, hang on, why is he saying that or what's really, you know, is there an ulterior motive here? And I think leaders can get frustrated um, with the response they might get over time um, because clearly people aren't really listening when it comes down to it. Yeah. yeah. As a leader, it's my job to give feedback and people expect feedback from the leader. But again, if, you, if they don't feel you're genuine. So my, my thing is if, if, if you have strong relationships um, outside of work, if you've got strong relationships or professional relationships inside work, people think you're genuine, they trust your intent, they think your motive's pure and all those sorts of things, then in reality you should be able to say whatever you like to, yeah. <laughs> to people. And and you might say the wrong thing but they'll take it the right way and you'll be able to work your way through it. But if you don't have that, you could say the right thing and people are still going to take it the wrong way. Yeah, it's 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 a really tricky thing and it just reminded me, um, this book I'm reading right now is about, you know the film Band of Brothers? Yep. Uh, is it a film? No, it's a TV series. Um, I'm reading the book now, Major, Major Dick Winters, um, and it's just talking about... You know, he noticed the differences between other officers versus himself. He he often had a really good rapport with 
um, you know, non-commissioned or um, just enlisted, you know, servicemen. And um, he felt that that was very crucial to his success as a leader. And I just wonder how can someone develop that? It, it It's hard because a lot of people, a lot of leaders don't realize the weight of their position. You know, I know that even in the company that I work at, even though I'm not one of the most senior leaders of the company, as a senior member of a team, you often don't realize the weight of the words, yep. um, you know, the weight that they carry. Yep. So I just wonder how can we be better or how can people be better at building that rapport with, with yep. staff? Um, it's a skill. Yeah. So it can be learned. Mm. So, again, for me, it comes down to choice. So, you know, if you think about the leaders that you admire and think – specifically around their characteristics of, you know, why you admire them. Mm. You know, they didn't fall out of bed at a young age and bang their head and all of a sudden now they're better at building rapport than, you know, <laughs> you or I. It, it's conscious decision. Yeah. They want to be a leader that builds rapport. They value relationships. They value building rapport. They can see the connection between building rapport and being genuine and trust and all those things and performance. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I challenge leaders – around their language and what they espouse and then what actually happens in terms of their behaviour. And and so um, that's, again, where they've got to be careful around you know, being genuine. Um, it, takes, it takes time and effort. It yeah. takes deliberate action. You know, if I looked at your week hour by hour, would I see time and space where you're building relationships or I just see you in back-to-back meetings? Mm. You know, I've had leaders who, who talk about time, Paul, which I mentioned earlier, and, oh, but I'd love to build relationships, I'd love to build rapport, I just don't have time. And so I'll get them to put their week, a normal week on the board in front of their team hour by hour, Monday through to Sunday, and then get the team to pull it apart. And, and it's fascinating because the team will say, well, why do you go to that meeting? And surely Justin should go to that meeting. He's, yeah. And so what they can do collectively is actually clear eight to ten hours of the CEO or the MD's week where if you're fed income about what you're espousing in terms of valuing relationships and rapport, et cetera, et cetera, now you've got 10 hours in which you can do it. Yeah. Um, so for me, how do you develop it? Um, you need to be conscious of it, and that either can be through self-reflection and 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 wanting to be like someone else, or um, it might be that you've got feedback from your, your team saying, hey, we would love if you were doing more of this, this, and this. Yeah. Uh, and then it's about developing a plan, and just like we talked about before, sharing that plan with your team. Here's how I'm going to be seen as a leader. Here's what I'm going to be working on specifically. Here's how we're going to measure it. I want you to hold me to account. Mm. And then yeah, and and then based on that, um, you know, in theory, you should go closer towards being the leader that you want to be. Yeah. So it's not luck. It's not oh well. It's not personality based. Although clearly some personalities might find it harder. That doesn't mean it's impossible. They just might need to work a bit harder at yeah. it. But if they truly value it. And it's, it's no different from an organisational point of view. I, I can work out what the organisation values just based on where they spend most of their time and effort and money and what they reward. Yeah. And, and again, that'll be a reflection of leadership. Do you think, though, that I feel like there has to be some sort of offering from leaders as well, that like they've got to offer themselves a bit more personally? Some people can be, can be quite guarded, I think. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And again, as the leader, you'll set the scene. So if we're going to go down this path of empowerment and relationships and um, you know um, trust and respect and all those things, you, the leader really needs to set that, that scene and set that environment. Yeah. Um, and so as the leader, if you're, you're guarded and you remain guarded, well, then the person who perhaps was going to give a bit more 
picks up on the fact, well, okay, we're not, clearly not given too much here, so I'll be guarded as well. And so that just becomes the environment. Yeah. Um, so, again, the, the onus in the first instance is on the leader and the influential people to really give of themselves, open themselves up, make themselves a bit vulnerable, um, uh, to lead the way, to show people that it's okay, that this is where we're going and I'm going to lead it. Um, an exercise I often do with with clients um, is to get them to bring two or three objects along to the session that are significant to them. Right. And 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 they've got to be able to talk through why their objects are significant, and and it's designed to give us us as the team more of an insight into who you are, what makes you tick, what's important to you, and what you value. Right. Um, and we've had some fascinating um, yeah, sessions they- built around those objects. Um, wow. And it can get quite emotional. Um, can get quite deep, um, and it, and you can just see the impact on the team. Um, that if we can do that, you know, what impact can that have? If we can replicate that, maybe on a personal level that we've just done there on, on a professional level, and we understand each other a bit more, and I, I know perhaps what's sitting behind the guarded nature of yeah yeah. I've got an explanation now. I'm a bit more aware of what's going on for you in your life, or um, I, I didn't realise that you. You know, collected those, and I actually collect them as well. But we've never talked about it. We've now just automatically just got a stronger connection, which we can then leverage off to improve the professional relationship. Mm. Um, we, we're not we're not trying to make people best friends, but we're certainly trying to get people at a minimum to have professional, you know, really strong professional relationships. Of course, yeah. But see some value in you, you're more than just the person that turns up for work. Yeah, we've all got a story to tell. We've all got shit going on. Yeah, and it's hard to to leave all that at home and not bring it to work because at work we're under pressure, and sometimes what's going on at home. Well, the the thing is, the the chance encounters that you have with that individual are the way that you filter and and view that person as well, and that's what's probably must be so surprising about that that process of bringing the stuff in. Yep. That you know um, is unique to that person because you just you break down those filters completely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What well, um, this reminds me of uh, something I've always wanted to know is like how can Lower staff, I guess, communicate up the chain to leaders without um, not getting themselves in trouble but stepping on toes. I mean, like, you know, if a, if a company or um, a team is going in a direction that you think is just wrong and you can show it, how can people better communicate that to their, their team leaders? Yep. Um, again, it will send around again, with the work that we do, it centres around that team, so the newer members of the team. So I, I might run sessions where it's their person's first day. Right. So, but they're in, they're involved in this process. So for me and for us, there is equally, as long as, as long as you are doing your best to live and breathe the expectation, you are equally uh, in the right to challenge someone who's been around a bit longer than you. Mm-hmm. Okay, but clearly there might be some other things that would perhaps stop you. So if, again, if there's no relationship, if there's a feeling that the person I'm going to speak to, whether it be my boss or just a more senior person in the team, um, I don't trust them. We don't have a relationship. So that's why we're always. It's not a, a, a just we've done the expectations. Therefore, we're it's just a free for all now. It's we've got to chip away at the relate. We've got to we've got to know where the relationships are at. So we'll we'll get teams to work out where the relationships are at with each member of the team and where are they strong, where do they need to improve. We help them improve those relationships so they can actually have those conversations a bit easier. Yeah. 
the leader needs to take a high level responsibility to make sure that we've created a safe environment. Yeah. So, so if you've got a, a junior person talking to a senior person, what the senior person needs to be able to take responsibility for is their response to the junior person. Mm. So what we want is the junior person who feels that they uh, are willing and able to say something to a senior person, well, we want the senior person to respond in a way that's not going to stop this person from ever speaking ever again. Right. And so that's less about the junior person now, that's more about the senior person. Okay. And so we might have to do some work around that. Yeah. There's some risk in it. You know, you've you, you got to step outside your comfort zone. But it is very much about creating a safe environment, agreed environment, and then if you're behaving in a way that's in line with what we've agreed, you are equally allowed or have permission to challenge others in the team regardless of how long they've been in the team. Yeah. Do it the right way, respond in the right way. Again, if it's genuine, the only reason we're creating this environment is is to create improvement opportunities. So if I can receive the, your feedback in the spirit of you're helping me to improve, you're going to play a role in my improvement, and if... I'm open to that. Well, then, you know, we should be able to move forward pretty quickly. Yeah. What's but, the, sorry, go. I was going to say, what's sort of the the craziest turnaround that you've seen in a team, and maybe even just an individual? Um. Well, crazy. I mean, you get teams that would view themselves as either dysfunctional or pretty close to. Yeah. Um. Um. And in some of the work, and it's it's a credit to them because some of the work. That we've done with them and they've invested in it heavily. Um, they're now having conversations they've never had, right? And they're productive and they're meaningful. Um, they've they've increased their levels of trust. They may not be a ten out of ten yet, but we've had individuals or teams go where perhaps we're a three out of ten. We're now a four or five. We're now a six or a seven. And just to see the way that they can acknowledge, you know, what six months ago we could never have had this conversation. Yeah, as a complete group, or I could never have had that conversation with you. I had a client last week um, I spent a couple of days with. It was two businesses coming together, um, so two leadership groups coming together because they need to work together from two different businesses. Um, and th- these guys, the two owners of the businesses, they in the work that we – that was the most they've ever spoken to each other. <laughs> yet, what? yet this is a multi-million dollar you know, business where these two relationships are crucial to you know, ongoing success and sustainability. Um, and just for them, just the the realization, you know, what this is actually good that we're speaking, and and we take them through a bit of structure. I take them through a bit of structure, and you know, they've agreed on some outcomes. Now they they haven't walked out arm in arm, and they haven't skipped away off into the sunset, but they're really clear around what they want their relationship to look like moving forward. They're really clear around if what will happen if they don't address the things they need to address, and they've done that in front of their teams. So now the teams can all play a role and challenging and supporting these guys in developing a strong professional relationship. They may never be good mates or socialise on a Friday night together, but at a minimum, they're a bit more aware around what they each stand for and what makes them tick and they're a bit more aware of um, you know, what they want in life and all those sorts of things and, and, and they're able to build a stronger connection. So I don't know if that's under the umbrella of crazy, but I've had people that haven't spoken to each other for six months and then you work with them and... They're now talking more than they ever have and they can see the benefit. So the ideal outcome is you can get a team to improve regardless of where they're sitting on the dysfunctional scale through to high performing. We try and avoid dysfunctional teams if we can because clearly, well, not clearly, but potentially I would like perhaps the team to make some structural changes, get, get a couple of people out before we work together. And that might help the team at least be open then to. So when you when you're meeting with someone in the first instance and they're saying, "Well, our team's dysfunctional. We've got a couple of 
You might ask them some questions around, well, how long have they been in the team? What have you done to date to address the issues? Is there anything more? Have you put a line through them? Why are they still in the team? You know, are they, in terms of competency and character, why are they still here? I don't think there's much I can do until perhaps you get that person out and then maybe we can work together. Um, so there's a whole range of things that need to come into play to, to enable that environment where people feel safe to engage in conversation. They might forever and a day feel uncomfortable and it won't be their favourite thing to do, but it's the safety element which is which is crucial. Yeah. When when it comes to I guess forming your own views on leadership and high performance teams, we've spoken a lot about the processes and, and all that sort of stuff. Where do you look for inspiration outside of this field? Outside of this field, so um, but still within team and um, inspiration. Oh, it's all around, I guess. You, there's one that I'm, I've over the last six to twelve months that I've been more fascinating than I ever have been is the San Antonio Spurs as an organisation. Okay. Right. Um, Why is that? Um, a close mate of mine, um, Jason Cripps, is a or former teammate, and yeah. he's a list manager at Port Adelaide, and uh, he went on a, a research. I'd call it a junket, but um, <laughs> over to the States, uh, trip there to do some research and find out, you know, get inside some of these high-performing organisations and find out what makes them tick and all those sorts of things. Um, and anyway, I sat down with him and we had a good chat about what he had unearthed there and, and it really resonated with him. So I, I didn't know much about them other than my, I've got a few boys that play basketball and they follow them a little bit, but I'm not much of a basketballer. Yeah. Um, so I just started to look into them a little bit more and – Saw some good clips on YouTube and I just found as an organisation that the way they operate under their ownership and their coach and, and their leadership um, just really uh, resonated with me and, and, and is a really good match for our model, uh, the leading teams model. Yeah. Um, what, what in particular stood out to you? Um, well, just the things that we've been talking about. I mean, the, the key people are all on the same page. The key people have all got really strong professional relationships and, and – and when you watch them on YouTube, and there's some certain clips that I've been watching, you can just see the way that they they interact. Um, uh, you know, it's probably gone past just the per, uh, professional relationship. They're you know they're invested in each other as human beings. Um, you know, the way that they give feedback, the way that they um, recruit, um, the way they induct players, um, you know, the way that they um, interact on field, off field. Um, um, it just really resonated with me and. Um, Listening to them talk, it uh, yeah, I just found them to be quite fascinating. So I, I use a, a, a lot of that in my sessions with clients because it's about yeah, where, where do you learn about leadership? How do you learn about leadership? There's good yeah. books, there's people you've dealt with. So I'm constantly looking and, and trying to find inspiration, if you like, for for me, but also for my clients. Around again, this is not just about leading teams. You, you can you know, you're not limited to leading teams here. I'm happy if you go out and research and yeah. find inspiration. So I often get clients to go and research articles and we come back and let's debrief your article. And your article doesn't have to even um, agree with the leading teams model. It can be something completely different. But So we do a lot of that in our sessions to get people to research widely around leadership and you know, team and culture and, and performance. And, and um I guess leading teams is really a collection of a whole range of leadership thinking. What we try to do is distill that down into a practical way of implementing it. Yeah. Common language, not too complex, not overly theoretical, but high implementation. So, um, so they've been one that, yeah, that's resonated with me in the last six to 12 months. So I'm actually, yeah, 
quite interested in the Spurs now. Yeah. Um, and they've been a high-performing team for a long time. Yeah. Um, were, were you just like looking at clips of them doing press conferences or documentaries? Yeah, or? there's a couple of clips there where you hear from the coach, you hear from the players, you see um, clips of how they play, um, and then there's commentary that that is overlaid the, on top of the, the, the footage. So it's different basketball people talking about their San Antonio Spurs and what they notice about their culture and their leaders and um, – and one of the things that really resonated with me, which I talk a lot about in terms of um, you know, leadership inside organisations, is that you know, the commentary in one of these clips that I that I show my clients is that you know the key people are all in the same circle and they believe in the concept. Um, now I don't use concept as language in in my sessions, but for them the concept is the game plan, it's their culture, it's the it's the way they play, and so for my clients it's the concept is whatever they're agreement is it's their the way that they do their work it's it's their framework it's and it's about having the ceo the the team leader the md the whoever the key people are in that organization all in that same circle right um and i think if you look at an afl club the successful afl clubs you'll, you'll have a president you'll have a head of football you'll have the head of fitness you'll have a coach you'll have a captain you know, you'll have whoever else as the key members across the organisation who are all in the same circle. Yeah. Um, and then they go out in the business and they lead and they influence all in the same similar way with consistency. And then if one leaves, it doesn't mean the whole place falls down because you've got a broad spectrum of leaders across your business. Um, and so organisations like Geelong and Sydney and those types where key people have gone, well, their performance hasn't dropped. Yeah. In a, in a poor team or a poor organisation, as we <coughs> talked about earlier, the, the one person goes and the place falls apart and and that's a bit of an indication of a lack of ownership across a broader part of the business. Yeah. That that sort of reminds me of a question I asked Rowan Connolly. I said, what can teams, you know, like I was um, I was elated last year when the Bulldogs won the grand final because it just gave, you know, me hope that St Kilda can yep. indeed win one. Yep. And I, I was just thinking, you know, I had this question for him. I said, um. You know, it's no longer the top four clubs have been guaranteed success. Uh, not the top four, but the you know the old sort of firm of Richmond and Carlton and Collingwood yep. and Essendon. Yeah. Um, and it's been new the sort of the next bracket being, um, you know, Hawthorne and Sydney and Geelong. Mm. What do you think that teams like St Kilda and the Bulldogs and so forth? What can they do to ensure that sort of long term success? What do you think have been the key things that have stuck out? Between those three versus the other three, yeah. Oh, well, again, I, I think if I go back to the high expectation, accountability, and high demand. That's that's an element of it. Yeah. Um, and maintain, mean, man, maintaining it as well. And maintaining it. So, so again, having key people all believing in the system from a from a technical point of view or game plan or whatever it might be, but also all believing in the where they want to take the culture. And then when you get an opportunity to recruit, recruit against that. So the Spurs, the first questions they will ask around recruitment is, do they fit into a Spur, you know, into the Spurs way or, you know, whatever their catch cry is? They've got to be a Spurs fit. Everyone has to be able to pass the ball, regardless of, you know. So they have some key things that are non-negotiable. So I think what you've seen in the AFL is you'll have clubs that go through that sustained period of success. That they have, they're non-negotiable. So it doesn't matter who comes or goes. These are the key things. So if you're a star player, great. You still got to fit into our system. Um, so I think there's an element of that. 
Um, and I think you know clubs like St Kilda, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I think they're getting heaps better at yeah getting key the key people in the posts and in developing really strong relationships with those key people. Yeah, and then everything will stem from there. Clearly, you've got to have some talented players, so you need you know talent. Um, but um, I think it still comes down to getting the key people. Yeah, um, and I think also the AFL the equalisation policy. It's taken a while, but I think it's finally starting to have an impact. So clubs have to get smarter. Yeah. And so you can't waste time with with having dud leaders. You can't waste time with having the wrong people in your organisation because you're going to get left behind. Yeah. With the limited or the, the balancing of resources or the you know, the budgets and all that sort of stuff. We we're starting to the big clubs will always be the big clubs. But in terms of performance, it doesn't mean they're going to win premierships. Yeah. But, you know, like going to what you said about the equalisation thing, it has changed the, the model of the AFL dramatically. The old model was the clubs, I feel, were front and centre. Now it's – the AFL reminds me of like the UFC. It's like a it's a competition but it's also a corporation. Mm. So you've got the AFL, which is the brand, and then all these sub-brands for all these different groups of people within it. And the AFL sort of seems to ensure that if a club is going down, they will get the right people in the right places mm. and make sure that they do well. i got to say, when it comes to St Kilda, I don't think I've ever been more impressed by the people in the key positions that you said mm. before. Yep. I've never, ever felt that every one of them, I think it's like the chairman, coach, yep. CEO, um, I guess... I don't know. I don't know if COOs like, but a meat Baines in that position yep. have yep. really stood out for me. Yeah. So it's going to be very, very intriguing in five years from now to see how yep. things go. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, I agree. I I was running the lead change program at St Kilda for the last three years. Not not this year, just gone. But well, the current year. Um, do they do they use leading teams? No. So um, Alan Richardson's a, a fan of leading teams and has used leading teams before. So when he was appointed. Part of that was to bring yeah. leading teams on board. So I worked with Richo and the Saints for his first three years. Um, and so having seen um, the transformation of the club a little bit um, in my time in the last three years that I was there, up close, I, I, yeah, my observation is they've got good people in, in the key posts. Yeah. And um, you know, over the years... You know, they've had some good people and then they've had a few that haven't quite worked out. And and so what I find is if you can keep them together for a period of time, not forever, but a period of time and stabilise and build it around those key people, and that includes players, includes, then you're a better chance of getting that stability and long-term. Um, and, yes, the AFL, um, you know, like it or not, you know, they obviously play a key role in where the competition's going and how clubs are going and, you know, they can at times you know, insert a person into a club and yeah. in isolation that might have some impact, but you can't – that's not a, a strategy for the long term. It's You still can't ignore all the other bits and pieces and for us culture just plays a huge role in in performance. And so um, even if you pluck world's greatest CEO out of somewhere and plonk him into the Gold Coast Suns, yeah. it, it's not going to guarantee or um, performance. So – it's going to be fascinating for me sitting and watching what will happen with the Gold Coast Suns because, yeah. you know, again, um, Evans is there now and he's a good operator and, and um, you know, he's going to get a chance to build his team around him in the key posts. Um, so that would be fascinating to see what happens there. It'd be ve- Yeah, it's going to be very intriguing. I know that a lot of people are talking about that um, when it comes to AFL. 
Um, what do, are there any particular books that you've ever read around these topics that have stood out to you? Well, I could shamelessly plug the two leading teams books, but um, <laughs> while they are good reads, what are they? What are they called? Um, Any given team, okay, and teamwork, okay. Um, so um, that would certainly give people a, a good insight into uh, leadership. But look, I um, there's a book that I've read that I, I lean on quite a bit, um, both for me personally and um, uh, professionally. Uh, Man's Search for uh, Meaning, so okay. uh, Victor Frankl. Yeah. Um, and so... What's that book about? So he was uh, a survivor of Nazi war camp um, and he talks about, you know, um, how he's done that and how others survived and perhaps how others could have survived. Um, so he talks about purpose, talks about understanding what his purpose is at any given time. He talks about making decisions and choices around your purpose um, and talks about choice and even in dire, extreme set of circumstances, your last human freedom is still to make a choice. Yeah. Um, and so in the work that I do, I hear a lot about people, I hear a lot of people talking about um, the fact that they, again, time poor or um, complaining or whinging or, you know, and, and sometimes... I might say to them, you understand you've got a choice here and, and you've made choices that have got you to here now and you'll have choices that will get you to where you want to go or you can choose to whinge and complain. And yeah. So I, I use that book a lot for myself personally. Um, I use it a lot in sessions. I might you know, pluck quotes out and put them on the wall and get people to, how's this relevant, how's it not relevant, you know, all those sorts of things. So that's a book that I've read that um, – that I I found quite um, useful, both professionally and personally. Yeah, um, Maverick's another book that I've read, um, <laughs> Ricardo Semler, I think it is, um, which is a powerment off the charts. Um, <laughs> um, so again, I often uh, um, talk to people about that. And there's lots of books that I've read here and there, and I you know I pluck things out. And um, too soon, uh, too old, or too late, smart, or something like that. Um, that's a book that I, I – uh, there's bits of that that I, I like. But um, these days, you know, in uh, the book, it's hard to read with seven kids. Uh, I don't get a lot of quiet time, but um, – <laughs> How does that How does that work, by the way? What, having seven kids? <laughs> like what, are they – Are they? have you got um, – are many of your kids teens now? Yes. Again, I'm just going to show my age here a little bit, but um, one's 25, one's 21. Okay. And I've got a bunch of, well, not a bunch, a couple of teenagers and a few underneath okay. teenage age. So I've got a full spectrum, really. Yeah. Um, it's not something I'd recommend, having seven, but <laughs> uh, I've done that in, term, in terms of choices. I've made a choice there. Um, it has its moments. But, uh, yeah, there's a certain dynamic go, goes on inside our household. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so reading is something that I used to do a lot of and I do a bit when I'm travelling, but... Um, so these days it's YouTube clips and the odd yeah. podcast here and there and um, I just look for articles on LinkedIn and, and scan those and, and find things that interest me. Yeah. Is it, is there any particular um, favourites that you go back to on YouTube? Because I think that based on what's happening with Facebook and, and generally content, um, you know, video and anything voice or audio is pretty much being um, prioritised. So Yeah. Um, again, the TED Talk 
stuff. Um, Simon Sinek or yeah, Simon Sinek. Yeah. yeah. So he did one about purpose as well. So purpose is a big part of what we do, um, and so that obviously resonates. So that's one that I've I've um, looked at numerous times. Um, in the last six to twelve months, though, I reckon I've watched the Antonio Spurs uh, clips on on uh, on YouTube. Um, on a weekly basis, so every time I, 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 there's two in particular that I like, and um, each time I, I watch and listen to those, I, I pick up something a little bit different. So, I know what it's like. I, I've become obsessed with um, this guy Scott Galloway, who um, runs a, I guess like a strategy business called L2 Inc. But he particularly focuses on like technology and marketing and how those sorts of things are dramatically impacting society. His, his videos are hilarious because he's very – he's got like a dry wit. Um, but, yeah, I've pretty, I'm pretty sure I've watched about 100 of his videos by yep, now. Yep. So um, I know what it's like. If you were to do any – let's say you were – Melbourne said to you, we want you to run the executive MBA this year. I think it's like a six to twelve week program or something like that. Yep. And you got a class of twenty budding leaders, and you got a million bucks on the line to run the program. Um, and you've got to push out twenty effective effective executives. What would you do? How would you structure it? Um. Well, again, I would apply um, the leading teams model and adapt it to suit, but. There'd be a lot of work on them individually around their purpose, their trademark, um, and it would be an intensive process. So, you know, developing a trademark for you as a whole person um, is 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 quite a in depth um, self reflection, self analysis, unearth some things that perhaps you've put down deep deep inside somewhere inside yourself that you weren't hoping to drag out again, but. There'd be a fair amount of time up front looking at that um, uh, to get them to think about them as a whole person. Again, legacy, end of the day, what do you want it to have looked like? Um, uh, the objects, you know, I would take them through that process. The idea would be to show them as much stuff that is practical for them as an individual, but again, the ability to then very easily take it back to their workplaces. Um, yeah. So we'd start there. You know, the concept of building relationships. What what does that look like? Um, get them to think about leaders they've come across and what do they admire. Almost like a big funnel. We just throw a whole heap of stuff into that funnel. Yeah. Um, and then get them to spit out the bits that they don't want or need or doesn't resonate. And then at the end of that course, they'd have absolute clarity around what they stand for as a leader. You know, what's their leadership philosophy? Um, get them to. Um, at the end of it, they would um, would role play. They're going for a job, and we're the board that's going to make the decision. And in that interview, someone just said to them, "Yeah, but talk us through your leadership philosophy." And they'd have to be able to, at the end of that course, with confidence, talk through their philosophy on leadership and how it add value and all those sorts of things. So, so we spent a lot of time in that course. Yeah, sharing challenges, issues. Um, you know the role plays, the case studies, um, put them to the test with physical activity, um, give them opportunities to lead and debrief and give feedback. Um, and we run lots of programs like that internally for organisations or with a collection of leaders across different businesses and they're the best programs to run. Yeah. Because it's less about me and it's more about 
the quality of the person in the room because the knowledge and experience in the room, they leverage off each other, they, they challenge each other, they get exposed to thing, things and thinking that they haven't been exposed to before and they walk out with this bag full of extra knowledge and experience, a kit bag if you like, yeah. um, which they can apply um, back in their workplace. So um, it's, it's enjoyable work working with leaders from different walks of life and putting them in the room together and you don't have to do too much work as a facilitator. Yeah. Um, I've been a participant in one of those programs um, and as a facilitator, um, they're very enjoyable. Um, so you just find that they, they're able to – you're basically guiding them in a way and it's just – Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's as I said, we'd start with some relationship stuff and the objects and then get them into thinking about themselves. But the whole time it would be – I'd just be looking to throw in a little bit of a question and, and hope that that generates, you know, conversation. Yeah. Um, but again, if you've got people in there that have an appetite for leadership – You'll you'll find that they're 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 reading stuff. They're 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 doing their own research. They're really um, observant in their own workplaces around what high performance leadership looks like and what mediocre leadership looks like. And so they come armed with all this stuff. And to give them an environment that's safe where we can actually talk about this um, with the knowledge that we're going to strip you away a little bit, build you back up, and send you back out better off for having been in in the program or better off for having been exposed to a whole bunch of like-minded, similar-level type leaders. Yeah. Um, so that's where I find our stuff, what, what I, I believe our stuff is, it's less about us, it's more about generate the conversation amongst the people and, and get them to, to to come to some of their own realisations. And sometimes they need a bit of pushing and sometimes they, they would benefit from, well, here's my view or here's, here's how it's worked for me. And certainly we do that. Here's a story or here's something that we've got that works somewhere else. Um, but it's about prompting and, and, and probing and getting them to you know, have the right conversations and come to those realisations themselves because they, they've got to own it at the end. There's no point going on a course where they get heaps and heaps of information. You know, I don't hand out much at all. You take the notes that you want to take. I'll, I'll send through a summary of what we've done, but this is about you taking responsibility for your learning. So, um, so our programs are very uh, much built around – clearly I have a responsibility, but I'm yeah. not here to entertain you, you know, I'll challenge you, I'll ask questions, but you're going to do the work here. You need to take responsibility for your own learning. You need to take responsibility for the other participants' experience and their learning. So, you know, ideally that generates a high level of enthusiasm, engagement, ownership, buy-in, so, you know, they get good outcomes. Yeah. No different to what we're talking about just back in your own team is yeah. empowerment, engagement, ownership. They set the standards. You know, how do you want to describe this course at the end of this course? In a couple of words, what's the behaviour that's going to drive that? Okay, there's our there's our expectation, there's our framework. We'll use that throughout the course. Yeah. So you're just constantly giving them real opportunity to live and breathe it in the course or the program. Then they're better placed to apply it back in the. So we're not over theoretical. Yeah. Um, so um, and that's how we run our programs, whether they're six months, twelve months. You know, we've got clients we've worked with for. Five, six, ten, thirteen, fourteen years, and and the program just evolves. But it's it's not about us coming to them and just teaching them stuff. It's there's a small element of that at times, but it's more about them. Yeah, they know stuff. Yeah, of so course. It's about, not. <laughs> yeah, it's about uh, draw, dragging that out, and and sometimes it's a quote, or sometimes it's read this articles, and that generates. Um, come prepared to talk about a leadership experience you've had in the last week or last month, where it's worked well, or where it's gone pear shaped, and we just use that as content. Yeah. And then you know, someone says, oh, I had this issue, bang, we're off and running. So then if, if let's say as a 
parting recommendation to people who are listening and again going back to what i was saying before we've got a lot of people from the tech space or tech community that listen yep what would be the first steps that you recommend to them to start becoming a better team or a better leader what can they start looking at first where would you recommend this is the first place you have to look well i just think you look at yourself okay. first and foremost what is it that i do that my peers would say is productive what might they say at times is counterproductive or even derails us sometimes what what's my gut feel okay. what might they ask me to stop start keep doing what would they ask me to do more of less of or what what have i what am i doing about right Right, and and so just that honest assessment of yourself. Okay, shit, there's a bit there that well, I'm not happy that they might say that, and yeah, that's probably right, and I might not agree with that, but that's okay. And then think about well, what am I seeing in the workplace? What do I see from a leader? What do I see from our key people? How's that stuck up with our values? And then really, am I interested enough? Am I can I influence it? Who could I influence? Can I if I can't influence? Well, maybe I. If I if I've got my own value set and I'm really clear about that, maybe I don't belong here anymore. Yeah. Maybe I should go. Or am I am I a chance to change something here? Who who I reckon I reckon I'm influential. I reckon I could change old mate over in the corner. And I reckon I've got him on board where I reckon we could then go to the team. So I think it's about just looking at yourself first and then thinking about okay, what do I see around me? What role have I played in that? Could I just start to change a few things that I do? You know, would people notice that? And and you might be able to do it through that means in terms of changing slowly or it could happen quickly depending on your level of influence um, where the team's at. Okay. Um, or at a team meeting, you just say, you know what, everyone, here's what I'm thinking about where we're at as a team. This is what I'm saying and I'm part of it. This is what I do too. I'm not, I'm not pointing the fingers but it goes on and I reckon if we could change that, we could actually be better off. Um, so just ask yourself a few questions. Yeah, um, reflect on who you are. Reflect on who you are, who we are as a team, and is that what you want? Yeah. And then, then the next, the harder bit is, what are you prepared to do about it? Yeah. I want to jump into some quicker format questions. Yep. That I like to ask all guests. Yep. First is, what do you? What's your morning ritual? My morning ritual. Uh, well, these days I get up early, as early as I can. Uh, I'm an early riser. I like getting up early. How early? This is supposed to be a short answer, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I do. Uh, I'll have a man shake after I've done probably f- anywhere from fifteen to thirty minutes exercise. Okay. Um, do you have an evening ritual? Uh, block of chocolate. <laughs> okay. Sometimes we, my wife and I, share it. Sometimes we have a block each. Any go-to? Uh, yes, it's Cadbury. Yeah. Um, my go-to is hazelnut. Okay. Followed by plain. Uh, my wife likes hazelnut, but she likes peppermint. Top deck, plane. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's always a block or two in our cupboard or beside our beds. Yeah. Do you um, to keep it away from the kids? <laughs> no, it's something that I've passed on. Oh, really? So being a chocoholic is something that I was, in terms of legacy, it's something that my mum and dad have passed on to me. Yeah. Uh, we've well and truly passed it on to our kids. So there's – we hide it though. <laughs> um, and there'll be cupboards, there will be bags of M&Ms, there'll be – there's a whole heap of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, when I left to come here today, there was there was bags of chocolate and there was <laughs> – yeah. So, you know, it's – yeah, you live once and – Yeah, I, I'd agree with I that. I love chocolate, so. Um, do, you, do you watch any particular TV shows or documentaries or anything like that? Uh, I watch the odd documentary. I'm not – 
massive on documentaries necessarily. Uh, I watch, you know, again, today I was watching the uh, Tahiti Pro. I love surfing, so oh, I watch yeah. a lot of that. Where do you surf? Um, oh, it depends on time. So, um, I'm, again, on the internet, uh, if I've got a full day, I might go anywhere from uh, three or four-hour radius um, to drive. Um, if it's a short, sharp one down the peninsula, um, Flinders that way. Um, I love point breaks and, and secluded rocky point breaks. So, yeah. Um, but um, I'll go anywhere for a, for an uncrowded wave. So, yeah, I was thinking because um, we had a former guest, he's a, labeled as a futurist. He's, you know, always on the ABC or something like that doing some presentation about technology. But he's got a, a pretty interesting app. It's, it's like Instagram slash messenger, but for surfing. Right. So, um, um, I blank on the name of it. I reckon if I search on my phone, I could probably find it. But the gist of it is when you, um, so you, I'm guessing you search on the web just to get an eye, like the surf cams. Yeah, you're looking at yeah. surf cams. Yeah. So it's basically sort of like that, but the guys or girls are taking photos of the break and reporting on the day. Right. Um, yeah, his name, his name's Steve Samartino. Uh, and we'll go surf app. Um, but I thought maybe yeah you you might yeah well, quite you can like send that. that to me and I'll I'll have a look at it yeah um, sneaky surf right that's it yeah okay yeah so cool. it's it's been around for only a little while now but um because he's a big surfer as well yeah, so okay. he's cool. always you know taking photos or whatever yep yep um, do you meditate or do you do any sort of reflex reflection at all during the week um well well short answer is I do a lot of reflection. Yeah. Uh, don't necessarily meditate. We we did a year of meditation at St Kilda um, in order to try and improve our performance, which was interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's a that's another story. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, Mavwell is a big uh, yeah meditator. Yep. Yep. I, I've I've done it on the odd occasion, and I, and I, it feels good. You know, I like yoga. I used to do a lot of yoga and Pilates um, throughout my footy career. Yeah. Um, and and I really enjoyed that. What do you think you're most proud of? Um. Most proud of. I'm proud of my family and my friends. Um, um, that would be the things that I'd be most proud of. Yeah. I think I've, I've got friends that I see on a regular basis that you know I've been friends with since you know I was five and six years of age, and we're still tight and see each other. And there's a you know a group of us that wow weekly, uh, fortnightly catch up. Wow. So. I'm proud of that. I think that's reasonably unique, um, and you gather friends along the way. But certainly, I've got a core group that I've been friends with since early primary school, um, and my family. I, I I come from a small family, but um, um, the family's got a lot bigger in, <laughs> in recent years. And when you sit down, I love having barbecues and having friends and family over. And um, you know, when you sit down and have a barbecue, you sort of scan the backyard, and you can see all your kids, and you can see your family, and your then you got your mates and you got their kids and I just I feel quite uh, satisfied when I look around the backyard. Yeah. Do you do you have a particular songs playing on your playlist at the moment? Um I love my music and um I regularly go and see bands and so I'm constantly listening to music. Um At the moment, uh I've I've been smashing um uh, Leonard Skinner, um, <laughs> uh, their album pronounced Leonard Skinner. So um, I've just been had I've had that on high rotation 
for for a while now, for probably a few months. Yeah, uh, I'm a massive ACDC fan. fan yeah, uh, Bon Scott. So a lot of vinyl sit in my man cave, and I sit there by myself with a beer and listen to <laughs> music. So, but uh, Leonard Skinner at the moment is something that I've um, been playing on high rotation. Okay. Are there any particular lessons that have stuck with you over your life from either of your parents, whether they've said it directly or you just sort of noticed it indirectly? Um, look, I reckon I've got a, a strong work ethic um, and I reckon that was something that I observed in my old man. Mm. Uh, he, he died when I was 18, but he was only 36 when he died and, you know, had his own business, had numerous business, a bit of an entrepreneur, but a hard worker, long hours, um, uh, uh, just constantly working. But I never felt that he was never home, so he, he still had the, the knack of being around. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I think that I've tried to model myself a bit on that, that to provide um, for my family, you've got to work hard. So I try and model that to my kids um, and I think they've got good, strong work ethics at school and, and a couple have got part-time jobs and full-time jobs. So that's probably the thing that um, I think I've picked up along the way and I'm really conscious of having balance. So I'm really conscious of, you know, with work I travel a lot. So, you know, I left home Sunday last week and basically got home Thursday night. Right. Um, but I'm really mindful of that and so um, – you know, Monday I'll be at home. I'll have the weekend at home. Monday I'll be at home and just hanging out and take kids to school or pick them up or you know footy training and all that sort of stuff. So I'm just mindful of that balance. I think my old man did that well, even though he, I know he worked long hours. Yeah. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, where would it be and what would it say? Gee whiz, a billboard. Um, oh, what would it say? <laughs> If you need help with your team, give me a call. Maybe um, always looking on the lookout for good clients. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be a picture of my head. I reckon I've got a good head for podcasts. Actually, um, I probably wouldn't have a picture of myself on there. I'd probably have a, a picture with some nice waves, something like that. Yeah, a beach. I love the beach. I love the the water. So yeah, something that's a bit you know, calming and peaceful. And last question for you. If you had to start with nothing and do it all over again, whether it's your footy career and your professional career, what would you change or how would you do it differently? Um, I don't have any regrets, but, yes, I would do things a little bit differently. Um, I would – I think I mentioned earlier, but I, I would like to think that I'd have clarity around what I want the end to look like a lot sooner. I've, I've been a floater. And go with the flow, and today, as long as today's a good day. Mm. Um, but as I've gone through uh, my playing career and now in career, and as a dad and all those sorts of things, I've yeah, I would have liked to have perhaps I would do that differently. Not not be more serious, but just have a clearer picture around what I want it looks like. Yeah, at the end, so that I'm making better decisions that are actually going to take me there, as opposed to spending yeah. Too much time in the wilderness. Just, just a clearer direction. Clearer direction. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't want it all planned out for me. Of course. But yeah. um, you know, at school, I didn't take school overly seriously. You know, um, some of my friends did, and that's great. And they were really clear on what they wanted to look like. Um. So that would be something that I'd do a little bit differently. I, I, I'd, I'd probably, if I was going to be a sportsman, I'd probably be a professional skateboarder or a, or a surfer, not necessarily an <laughs> AFL player. Um. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't change too much. Yeah. Well, look, um, 
Justin, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, where can people find out about you and leading teams? Well, I mean, uh, on our website, which leading teams. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you hang out on social media? I do. Um, so I'm on Instagram. Um, <laughs> I think just Jay Peckett, I think I am. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. I'm not overly um, tech savvy. <laughs> So Twitter, I might be Jay Peckett as well. But um, do you, do you spend more time on LinkedIn or I spend a bit of time on LinkedIn because I like again just ease access to you know articles and 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 things like that. I don't post a lot. My my view is if, if you're a consultant and you're posting all the time, then maybe you're not working as much as you should be. So <laughs> I often find it hard to post a lot. Um, but I do enjoy LinkedIn. I yeah. Um, but LinkedIn, Instagram, and and Twitter would be my main three in terms of social media. Yeah. Um, um, but I'm not a huge contributor, but I do contribute every now and then. Yeah. Well, okay. Like I said, I, I really do appreciate you doing this. Oh, no worries. It's been very insightful and, uh, yeah, thank you. No, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for making it this far. We hope you enjoyed the episode. The first thing I'd like you to do as I said at the start is subscribe. Subscribe on your podcast app. It will give you priority access to future episodes and go a long way in helping fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. The second thing I'd like you to do is leave us an invaluable review on Podchaser. Podchaser is the new IMDB of podcasts and they've given Neural's subscribers priority access to their beta launch. In two minutes, you can leave a review. Just proceed to beta, beta.podchaser.com com and type in the promo code uncommon that will allow you to get access you can also go and leave reviews for the other podcasts that you like as well alternatively we would love your review on itunes stitcher and any other platforms that you use don't forget to like us on facebook twitter snapchat or instagram it's just at neural each week we'll have a promo for the episode that will distribute out on those platforms so until next time thanks for listening